2: Hello, and welcome to the GQ podcast, Career Decisions. My name is Stuart McGurk, and I'm GQ's Associate Editor. We're at Farmhouse Down, a cozy cottage in the heart of Soho Farmhouse in Oxfordshire, where we'll be grabbing the stars of our GQ Heroes event, taking them through the biggest moments of their careers, the decisions they've made, and the lessons they've learned. On this episode, GQ's senior commissioning editor, Charlie Burton, talks to Virgin Galactic's chief pilot, Dave Mackay,
0: the first Scotsman in space, if you don't count
2: Scottish.
0: We're joined today by Dave Mackay, chief pilot of Virgin Galactic, who went to space for the first time in February, which was a big moment both for him and for Virgin Galactic, which over the last 14 years has been building private space program uh, with the ambition of becoming the world's first commercial space line and taking paying customers on a trip to the stars. Um, But Dave, I'd like to go right back to your childhood and where it all began, because a lot of kids dream of becoming an astronaut, but most don't go and do it. Um, What is it about you and your upbringing
2: that meant that you did? Um, well, the, the, uh, you know, I have to be honest that there's a, there's some luck in life, isn't there? You know, and uh, I, I was fortunate to be in the right place at the right time. But um, you know, my uh, interest in space, I, I guess, started uh, when I was very young. Uh, so I was brought up in a part of Scotland where, uh, which was used for low flying military training. So the vi- the villages I was brought up in. Uh, almost every day during the week, uh, low-flying aircraft, military aircraft, would fly overhead at high speed, making a lot of noise, going very fast and um, very low. And it was extremely exciting to watch. So I thought, "Wow, you know, being a pilot is fantastic, uh, or looks like fantastic fun." And um, and then, in uh, actually, when I was only seven years old, I uh, I won a, a book for attendance at Sunday school. I had a very strict mother. Uh, she made me go to Sunday school every week, and uh, as a result of that, I was awarded a prize. The book was called Exploring Space, and it had a cutaway of a mercury capsule on the front cover with an astronaut inside. And then some of the illustrations inside uh, the book itself um, had uh, showed you know, rockets taking off that were the size of St. Paul's Cathedral and had Union Jacks on the side, and so that was my favorite bedtime reading for quite some time. And then later in the sixties, uh, I watched the Apollo Moon program, and uh, you know I especially remember Apollo Eight as you know being a remarkable achievement. It seemed you know, a remarkable adventure. You know, for the first time, uh, men went left the Earth's gravitational field and went around the Moon, and the rocket motor had to fire to get them back. Otherwise, they're going to be stuck around the Moon. So that really captured my imagination. It happened at Christmas time in 1968. Uh, they read from the Book of Genesis, which was very poignant at, at that time of year, and and then as they came round the moon, uh, for the first time they saw this amazing sight of the Earth rise over the moon, and they, they quickly grabbed a camera and took uh, that uh, iconic uh, shot, which is which I think everybody had on their bedroom wall at some stage in the sixties, and uh, so, and I found out that those Apollo astronauts were former military test pilots, so I. Uh, came up with this extremely ambitious plan as a young kid that uh, i could become a military pilot become a test pilot and then become an astronaut and walk on the moon and mars and that kind of thing so i always had that ambition
0: what age were you when you decided to embark on that plan uh
2: i guess i was um uh, probably 12 11 12 or something you know i put it together and it was very ambitious and i I kept it to myself for quite a while because I thought, well, if I tell anyone, they'll just laugh at me and I didn't want to be laughed at. So um, it was kind of my own secret for several years and then started talking to other, uh, found out that other people had similar ambitions as well. Um, But uh, mostly I kept it quiet.
0: You joined the RAF. What were your main memories of that time? Did you see action? Uh,
2: I didn't see action. Um, I I joined the RAF. I wanted to do what I had seen as a kid. I wanted to fly at low level at high speed. I thought that was just really exciting. And the aircraft I wanted to fly was the Harrier because the Harrier did that, but it also had this capability of taking off and landing vertically and going on ships and doing all sorts of other things. So it seemed like a much more interesting airplane than the others that were in the RAF's inventory at the time. Uh, So... um, so I went through all my uh, flying training, and uh, at the point where I graduated from technical t- Tactical Weapons Unit uh, to go on to the Harrier, the Falklands War broke out, so my Harrier course was delayed because virtually the entire force went down to the Falklands. So my Harrier course was delayed, and, and therefore I didn't go down there during the war. I went down afterwards um, in 1985 as one part of the, the last Harrier detachment down there. And, uh, and then I later, I, I became a test pilot, and uh, when the Gulf War, the first Gulf War broke out, we were just testing the new Harrier, which wasn't ready for, for action yet. So because of that, I did not see combat. Do you wish you had? Um, I, I hesitate to say I wish I had, because um, you know, I don't know how I would have reacted. I've never been shot at, for real. Um, I've uh, I simulated that sort of thing a lot, and uh, that's what I trained to do. And uh, um, many of uh, you know, much much, much more recently, uh, it's became much more common for people to have lots of medals for for going to war and doing things like that. Um, so there's a part of me that thinks that uh, yes, I, I would have done it, but uh, to be honest. Um, you know, um, I'm okay with not having been shot at and not risking my life in that way. So you went to
0: test pilot school in France. How did that come about? Do you just apply for that or were you
2: sought out? Um, So I applied for test pilot school um, as soon as I had the minimum experience. And uh, that was partially because, you know, I had this plan, <laughs> uh, but also because I was really interested in the technical side of aircraft. You know, what makes a good aircraft and what makes a bad aircraft and 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 why. And so I was definitely interested in how airplanes work. Uh, so I, I wanted to do test line. Not many places are available in any given year. So when I went along for the interview process, they said, well, we have exchange students with the French school and the American school. Are you interested in that? And I thought, well, it would be fantastic to go to America and fly all those American aircraft." So I said, yes, I'd be interested. And they selected me for the French school. The reason for that is that I, I had a, a French, uh, Scottish higher grade in, in, in French. Uh, it was it a was good grade because French was not my favorite subject at school, but we had a very strict teacher and he got me through that uh, that French course, and uh, so you know years later they say they're looking for a student to go to France, and I happen to have that uh, qualification, so I end up going to France. So I've actually I'm actually now quite grateful to that teacher for being so strict with me and getting me through that course, because if he hadn't, then maybe I wouldn't have become a test pilot or an astronaut, or yeah, so it would, my dream would have failed maybe. Being a test pilot isn't inherently Dangerous job. I mean, you're
0: flying experimental aircraft. I mean, I remember in a New Yorker profile of one of your colleagues, uh, he said that you know, if, if you want a safe job, you go and work in a shoe shop. I mean, you guys are you're doing something which is intrinsically quite dangerous. What kind of close shaves did you
2: have? Did you come close to any big accidents when you were flying those planes? um So I. I, I'm not sure I agree with you. I think uh, test flying is—it it is definitely not as dangerous as is the popular public perception. We we are very very careful about uh, what for, about every test we do. Uh, you know, you, we can't afford to lose a modern, valuable, very expensive uh, military aircraft or or civilian aircraft. So uh, we always want to try and avoid that because. If nothing else, you it causes a, a great delay in a program normally to work out what happened and how to stop it happening again. So we always we approach every single test flight really really carefully. Um, I didn't have any um, really bad things happen to me. I had a few little minor things that happened in test flying. I, I remember one day, uh, in addition to flying the test line, the, the new Harrier, I flew lots of other aircraft as well. One of the One of the programs I got involved in was the Tucano aircraft spinning program. and uh, So this is a basic trainer aircraft, turboprop aircraft, uh, and I did the the spin program in it. We found uh, a spin mode which uh, hadn't been predicted, a flat spin mode, a very stable flat spin mode. And what what well, that means if a spin is very oscillatory, that means the aircraft isn't happy there. It wants to come out of the spin. But if the spin goes very flat and very high speed and stable, that means I'm happy here and I'm going to stay here. And uh, so that was interesting, but I managed to recover from that. I remember another event, the same aircraft, where I landed and uh, I was met by the maintainers and they looked at the, the fin at the back of the aircraft and said, ''You've been shot.'' And I said, ''What?'' <laughs> Said, you've been shot, you've got a, a bullet hole in your fin. And anyway, I got out and had a look, and sure enough, there was this, this hole in, in the fin, but it had come from the inside, so I thought, well, it can't, can't be a bullet hole because, you know, nobody's shot from inside the aircraft. Anyway, it turned out that there was uh, we had found this mode where we could excite uh, a, a component inside the fin and it had punched a hole through the, the fin itself. Luckily, it didn't get stuck in there and I was still able to fly it. Uh, so that was another close shave. And I guess I, I've had one accident in my entire flying career and that was when the right main gear didn't come down on a on an aircraft I was flying. So we had the nose gear and the left main gear down but the right main gear was stuck up. So we used the emergency blowdown system, and that didn't bring it down either. So now we're we're stuck in that configuration. Um, so we came back and we landed. We tried to keep the, the right wing off the runway, but it came down straight away. So now we, we're skidding down the runway on two wheels and a wingtip, and that wingtip starts to wear away. Are sparks and, flying?
0: Hmm? Are sparks flying from the sparks wing? Sparks
2: are flying from the wing, yeah. It's all getting very uh, exciting. And... Um, It digs in more and more, and we start to lose control of it, and we go off onto the grass. We're bouncing across the grass, and that's kind of okay. But then we hit a crossing road, a runway crossing road, which has got a big lip in it, and the whole aircraft jumps up into the air and goes sideways, and that was the point where I thought I may have to eject. But then it's amazing how the brain works in a situation like that. Everything kind of slows down, and I'm thinking... These ejection seats go are split because it's a tandem seat aircraft, and mine goes to the right when it as a split, and so if I ej- eject at a high bank angle with a seat that is going diverging to the right, I'm probably going to end up impacting the ground. So I'm just going to sit here and hope it all works out okay, and it did, and uh, so the aircraft was badly damaged, and about six months later. Maintainers come to see me again and they say, hey, um, we have we know what happened. Um, we've tested it many times in the hangar, but you broke it the last time you flew it, so you can go and test fly it, which I thought was very unfair. So anyway, I I got airborne in this aircraft again and guess what happened? Exactly the same thing. But because I knew what had happened previous time, I rolled the aircraft upside down. As you do. Uh, as you do. Uh Extended the gear upside down, it all came down and rolled upright and, and landed. You became a commercial pilot after the kind of career you'd had up until that point. Did that feel like a step back, like settling down? Um, I, I guess it felt a little bit like settling down. Um, so, that was, uh, I, I did 16 years in the Air Force, and towards the end of that period, I realized, you know, there's no human space flight program in the UK. I'm not going to become an astronaut. Um, my main aim in the Air Force was to become a test pilot. I had no ambitions after that really in, in the Air Force, but I come to the point in my Air Force career where they said, "You've done all the flying you're you're going to get really you need now need to go and learn to become a manager and work in London behind a desk and that was not my thing. I was not ready to stop flying I, I love flying i I love flying then i i I still love it as much right now. And so um, I I decided that um, if I stayed in the Air Force, I was going to be doing things which I really didn't want to do. Um, and I had no alternative but to leave. I'd had a fantastic time, but uh, I had no alternative. And this was the, the point where I wanted to leave or I had to leave, really. So it's kind of with a with a heavy heart. Um, I thought it w- Civilian flying was going to be easier than I found it. It was very different. It's a whole different skill set. So I was flying military aircraft. um, A lot of them single-seat aircraft where I had no one else to talk to. I was just doing, you know, all the checks and everything myself. And now I have a a flight crew, um, and that might be up to four people. And we have um, maybe a cabin crew of 16 on a 747 and maybe up to 500 people would down the back and uh, it was a very different skill set and there's the, also the um the fatigue side of things so that we are we're crossing multiple time zones you know most of my flying had been in one country and uh but now I'm flying across multiple time zones and flying late at night early in the morning things so it's a, it's a very different skill set I think but uh, it's something I really enjoyed I actually enjoyed the the manage management side of things uh, much more than I thought. The crew management and you know keeping and when I say crew, I mean not just flight crew but cabin crew as well, and uh, and then keeping all the the customers informed and doing things as safely and as efficiently as possible.
0: So then Virgin Galactic came along, and this reawakens your dream of becoming an astronaut. But at that point, you've now got a family. You've got considerations you didn't have when you were a kid entering the entering the military. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today.
2: Ask you whether you were sure this is a good idea? Many, many people <laughs> did. Yes. Uh, so, you know, my colleagues in Virgin Atlantic, there were, they, were, they were mixed. Uh, there were those that thought, this is absolutely fantastic. You definitely have to do this. There were others that said, "Hey, you're you're a senior captain now. You're being paid well. You're getting the routes you want. You're getting the flights you want. You're getting all this time off. Why would you want to give that up? You're mad. You know this is what people spend their whole career trying to get to that position." Um, and uh, and then there was my <laughs> my wife. Uh, so you know the, the the story is that in early 2004, I was out in Mojave and I had a look at uh, Spaceship One. The, si- the flight simulator there talked to the engineers and the test pilots talked to Bart rutan the designer and we talked about how that spaceship might be developed into something commercially viable and uh he said you know i could build a, a six place spaceship but that would be commercially viable i'd like to do that but i'm not interested in running it maybe your boss would be and uh so i remember getting back from from that visit to mojave back into the uk and uh telling my wife early in the morning, I've I've arrived early in the morning, I say, this is it, Virgin is going to space. And she rolled her eyes, said, don't be ridiculous, the grass needs cutting. (laughs) So convincing her was a little bit more challenging. So initially she didn't believe it, but once it became apparent
0: that this may well be a possibility, that you might be riding an experimental aircraft into space,
2: did she ask you to pause and have a think? Uh, yes. <laughs> More than once. Yes. No, there was, you know, we were living uh, just outside Salisbury, a beautiful little village. Salisbury itself, beautiful town, beautiful part of the world. We've been there for a long time. Lots of friends. Uh, the, the kids are at school. They've got lots of friends as well. So it, it was a big ask for the family. My son was, you know, he was, yeah, absolutely. Let's go now. You know, he, he was very excited about the whole thing. My daughter didn't want to go because uh, the our, our favorite uh, game at that time was football, and uh, they call football soccer in America, which really annoys her. And uh, and uh, so I was able. <laughs> this might sound shameful, but I was able to persuade my daughter to go because I said, "Well, we could get you a dog in America," and she'd always wanted a dog. And so then she instantly changed her mind. So that's one. And that's something, something for her. Um, My wife was uh, a little bit more challenging. But I think, you know, in the end, they they all realised, my wife as well realised, this was an incredible opportunity, a very, very exciting um, uh, enterprise to be involved in. And uh, she knew, like I knew, that it was an opportunity that we couldn't turn down. I have to ask,
0: after the accident in 2014, did you reconsider
2: uh, whether you were going to stay with the programme? No. No. Uh, So, and the reason... For that, uh, I mean, th- there was the initial doubt that I was actually airborne that day. I was, I, 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 actually, I was actually flying White Knight Two, and uh, so we heard what happened, and uh, you know, one of the thoughts, many thoughts, went through my mind at that point. Uh, but one of my thoughts was, "Well, this is the end of the program," and uh, that was really sad. However, <clears throat> um, we knew um, almost immediately. What, what had happened, and uh, but obviously we had the accident investigation process to go through to eliminate all other possibilities. But it, you know, it turned out that there was actually nothing wrong with the vehicle it, at, itself at all. We could have got in it the next day and flown it perfectly safely. Um, but a mistake was made, and. The pilot should not have been able to make that mistake. And so that that's what we've done. Um, and then, you know, Richard came out and um, he was made aware that actually the vehicle was fundamentally correct and good and sound. The rocket motor was as well. And, um, and he said, you know, as soon as I, as long as I have one customer left, I'm going to continue with this. And I was able, you know, my, my wife was there. She saw it as well. She saw the accident happening. And so she was clearly shaken by what she'd seen. Uh, But again, you know, I was able to go home uh, and tell her confidentially at that stage because we still had to go through this proper investigation process. Uh, But I was able to tell her in confidence that, you know, the vehicle was okay. uh, A mistake had been made and there was nothing wrong with the vehicle. And and that was a huge relief to her uh, at that point.
0: But nonetheless, it does bring home the reality of what you guys are doing. I mean, it's pilot terror, but... It's, you know you're putting yourself in a situation which encompasses risks like that um so did she take a while to get her and or for you to get your head around it or um were you just you know given that it was a,
2: not a problem with the vehicle were you immediately happy to to get going again we yeah uh, so i think that one of the things to remember is that you know I'd been in the military and uh i, I lost a lot of friends in the military uh, during those sixteen years. Um, there was a six-month period when I was in Germany where we lost three pilots, three so people that I, I knew well. Um, uh, so, you know, accidents were were, were not new to us. Um, and I'd been a test pilot for a long time at that stage. And uh, so, you know, my wife had got used to the fact that I was doing... Um, Things that, uh, you know, many people consider dangerous. Although, you know, as I said at the start, you know, we we go to extensive uh, lengths to reduce the risk and, and make sure we're being safe. Um, but based on what we knew very early on, um, as I say, I would have flown the vehicle the next day if it was there. Um, but it did make it because a human error accident or mistake had been made. It did cause us to reassess the, the entire vehicle, both vehicles, White Knight Two and Spaceship. So we went through everything again, but with a different mindset. You know, what if you if you had a really bad day and you did you did something stupid or something that you uh, totally out of character? You know, how could you? Could anything like this ever happen again? So we went through every system on both vehicles with a fine tooth comb. And uh, as a result of that, we made some significant changes. So tell us about your first space flight. I mean,
0: arguably the most momentous event of your career. Now you've had a bit of distance from it, you know, for um, your thoughts on it and your recollections to kind of coalesce. What are your main memories from going up there?
2: Yeah, so um, th- that's the way you couch that question is good because my initial uh my initial feeling immediately after flight was one of relief because you you spend so long working up to this flight, working so hard, the whole team, the entire team, uh, and we've only got one spaceship and one white knight. And the primary aim is to bring the vehicles back safely. Uh, you don't want to damage them. Uh, the, the secondary aim is to get as much data to flight as well as you possibly can to not screw up, pilots screwing up. And uh, it was a great flight, very successful, and so, you know, when i land people say well how do you feel and how how i felt was hugely relieved you know we'd done it we'd achieved the the aim um we'd brought the vehicles back safely we've got a lot of good data but also i'd seen that we have a fantastic product you know this this whole experience is truly remarkable and uh but we had trained ourselves to actually look out and absorb some of that experience which is not something at test pilots are normally just gathering data all the time but now we're just looking out the window as part of this test and i had seen the most incredible sites and so as we as we were coasting up towards apogee we had deliberately for this we had some experiments on board Pivot. And we'd pitched the aircraft all the way around the spaceship, I should say, sorry, pitched it all the way around into the upright position, and then we had aimed not to touch the controls for as long as possible. And so we went, we, we had this period, this extended period, where we were weightless, uh, there was no noise, you know, the motor shut down, there are no fans or anything, so there's no sound and there's no motion. The spaceship was absolutely stationary, and it just felt, you know, the words that came out of my mouth were, this is unreal because and I don't normally say that sort of thing but uh, and it's not a test pilot you know phrase but it just the view was astonishing and it just felt like we were suspended above this incredible vista and uh, it was it just felt unreal and then you know in the days afterwards my you know I thought back to it and I just how do I describe that experience what was it like and word magical came into my brain and it was almost a magical experience and now you know with it you know with the, a little bit more separation you know as I said uh, earlier uh, I feel like I've been to an extremely special place and seen uh, an incredible view that, that I'm very privileged to have seen it's just a, a remarkable thing it's and you know as I said you know images camera photographs don't capture it the way the human eye sees it. Richard Branson once said, space is hard, but it's worth it. What makes it worth it? There are many answers to that. I I think, uh, you know, I fundamentally believe we need to keep pushing forward. You need to push the boundaries of technology and of human exploration and endeavour uh, if nothing else, to inspire young children, you know, it's you know, I spent the last week up in Scotland talking to several classes uh, in school, primary children and secondary children, and they are fascinated by this and you know, awestruck by it and endlessly curious. You know, we had to just stop the questions because they just kept on coming, and I think that's really important. You know, one of the people talk about you know what, what the benefits of the Apollo program, and uh, there were some technological benefits. But uh, I think the one that uh, is arguably the most important in in my view at least is inspiring people around the world to get into science technology, engineering math, all those good things um, and, and that's something you can't measure you can't put a value on that but you know I'm utterly convinced that millions of people were inspired by Apollo, and I think we've got to we, People like exploration and exciting things. And I think we've got to continue to inspire our youth. Looking back on your career, what moment would you say had the biggest impact on what you've ended up doing with your life? What moment? (laughs) Uh, Probably um, the pivotal moment was uh, Mojave in early 2004 when I flew the Spaceship One simulator, and uh, I suddenly had this uh, epiphany that, um, wow, this is feasible, doable, and you could make a commercial spaceship out of this, and our boss, Richard Branson, is exactly the right guy to do this. I was just in the right place at the right time. Fantastic. Well, Dave, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.